0: It is our JLA family. I am Angela Birdsong, your Conversation Peace host on RadioJustice.org. For something new or unusual to talk about, for stimulating conversation for you while staying safe at home, or masked up at the plant, on the bus, train, plane, everywhere. Today on Conversation Peace, meet Felika Jones, Executive Director of Healthy African American Families widely regarded in the Los Angeles community as a voice of advocacy and source of education and training around disparities and research as they empower elders and parents with helpful COVID toolkits. Felika Jones, welcome to Conversation Peace. I am so um, excited to learn about how healthy African-American families. And the first question that comes to my mind is how healthy
1: are we? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, from, from our standpoint, we always look at the positive and the strength-based approach from our communities, right? So if, if data-driven, then we're not very healthy, right? But in our communities, depending on how we look at, I think we're doing really good in a lot of different areas. Um, like for example, we're eating more organically, we're getting a lot more exercise, um, a lot of us have stopped smoking, you know, so that we have been making marginal gaps in, in, in the disparity for, for our health. But we have a lot more to do. We have a lot more to learn about our health, you know, about hypertension and diabetes and, you know, obesity and, but I think, I think we're making good moves in the right direction. Yeah, because like you said, on, on, data, on data, we do
0: not look good. We are always at the bottom of, of the barrel. For for the for 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 everything. Yes, you're right.
1: Except, except for creativity. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> then then they, they we're on top, and then everybody's like, oh, we. And then they reinvent and say we did it, right? <laughs> well, right, you know, right. Well, I, I would say this. You know, um, we. It depends on how we t- research is, how the interview questions are written who's at the table of the research questions, like in, in, in developing those questions to really get at what those outcomes are really gonna look like, right? So for, for the reason why Healthy African American Families is here is to really bring that voice of the lived experience of the people that are impacted by whatever disparity that we're talking about. Because if you don't look like me and you're not in my community or you don't understand some of the, the, the strengths of my community, then you might look at my community in a deficit, right? You might say, oh, well, these black, black communities live in a violent and da 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 But you're not looking at how we still come together for certain things, right? Or you might not understand, you know, the strength of, you know, like when COVID hit, for example, and we'll go down the line later on, but how we started triaging the community as a black community of what resources need to happen within our own community, within like, say, Prince John Park area, right? All the agencies that provided services kind of came together. So I think, you know, when you, but, but if you don't know, then you might ask a question like, um, you know, there's isolation questions that are asked, you know, and then, you know, we, well, what what do you mean by isolation questions? So, for example, if you're talking about mental health, right? And you say, do you feel isolated or have you been alone or this, that, and the other? And so, you know, some depending on how what the what the outcome of that question you want to get from that, you might say, if I'm, for example, somebody might look, be looking for resources for money, they might say, Well, I need to get my SSI money. I might look at I might answer that question differently, right? Or if it just depends on how that those those questions are being asked and for what reason depends on how the community might respond to those questions. So I would say research can be driven in a different direction, depending on who's asking and how you're asking these certain questions. And so we always like, okay, well, how did that question, how did you ask the question? And then who asked the question? And then what tone did you ask the question? To be able to get an idea of what's happening in our community. Right. And I don't want to use that as a, that was kind of a negative Kind of expression, but I'm saying, like, let me give another question. Like, um, there might be questions around access to services or access. Like, when you say access, I have access. Our community has access to stuff, but is the quality of stuff right in our community? So they might say, oh, well, you know, the Black community has access to this, that, yeah, we might have access. But what are the quality of the stores, are the food just in the store? Was it refrozen over and over again and sold to us on what they call discounts when it's really should have been thrown in the trash? You know what I mean? Or are, right. do I have to stand an hour in the line when there's five lines to be open when I go on the west side versus three lines open in the community and, and, and we got to wait in these long lines for
0: food? Right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, you had, you had said something in, in that example about food that's being frozen over and over again. And mm-hmm. I had no idea that sometimes our produce, our, our fresh produce mm-hmm. is it's- frozen. <laughs> Please explain that to the <laughs> audience. Because when I found that out, I said,
1: I, I, I was dumbfounded. It, it, you know, it blew my mind when I first found out too. And then I said, you know, no wonder when you get home, it doesn't last in your refrigerator a certain period of time. So, you know, and I don't want to name certain markets, but we you know they'll they'll freeze the food in shipment, right? From one grocery store to the next. Maybe say from West West LA or down to Watts or where to these other markets that are part of their net their network. And then they'll put it on sale because it's not gonna last once it starts to defrost. It's not gonna last. So they'll say, oh, you know, we gotta sell on chicken or we gotta sell on avocados or sell on tomatoes. But they have been frozen and refrozen and refrozen again. And we know meat shouldn't be refrozen after it's been defrosted, but they'll they'll free freeze it and they'll resell it. And and we did a, you know, we were part of um, community health councils, uh, which is right up the street from us on Stocker and, uh, and with Stalker and Santa Rosalia. and they did a neighborhood assessment of we, we were in partner with them the neighborhood assess, assessment for um, uh, the supermarkets like to assess where how your supermarket was producing foods or how accessible was like diet soft drinks or you know fresh vegetables or whatever whatever. and then we ranked them. We ranked all these markets. And it, was, it, was, it really opened my eyes because I couldn't believe my mother was a diabetic. She wasn't necessarily diabetic, but she was a borderline diabetic. And so she didn't like, she didn't drink sodas. She didn't drink sweetened, sweetened sodas. She liked Snapple, Diet Snapple. You couldn't find Diet Snapple in our community. You either had Diet Coke, which she couldn't have any colas, or you had Diet 7-Up. That was the limit of a diet drink. And then we started, really started doing assessments of all the different 7-Elevens, all the different markets, and they didn't provide any non-sugar drinks. And it's the same thing with the markets. If you go into the market, you see chips and this and that all up in the front. But when you go to the one, the Ralphs on 3rd and La Brea, as soon as you walk in, you see all this organic vegetables and all this you know healthy eating and you know soups and this and that. Nice food decorated that makes you want to buy healthy. But in our community, it's like, buy this salted cookies and this, that, and the other, right up front. And it, it's always on sale. The sugary cereals, the chips, and all that stuff is on sale. So if they perpetuate the things, that, and you know, if we don't have cars, and some of us are limited on um, ability to move about. So therefore, you know, you're gonna look at shelf life. How long can something last in my house without me having to go back to the store? So naturally, those kind of things will last a lot longer than a bowl of fresh fruits and vegetables. So I often say when people make a healthy plan for a family of four that has EBT, you have to give them a a rational plan that they could use that's going to be beneficial for their lifestyle. Because if you have kids at home, they're going to see a bowl of food. They might eat all the food at one day, or it might not last too long. But how do you can some fresh food? Or how do you preserve some fresh food? Or what can you do? to make it last a little bit better? How can you make a cucumber, some kind of salad that they could eat? So you have to be innovative if you, especially if you wanna look at obesity, hypertension, diabetes, you have to come up with some innovative ideas. You can't just say, it's the problem of the family. It's the problem of the community. It's the problem of the, you know, how these stores are, are allowed to market our community. And that's
0: where healthy African-American families come in. Exactly. You guys- it's about said, raising
1: the awareness and understanding of how, because them, the markets do research on shopping. Uh, it's like when Trader Joe's said, oh, we don't want to come to, they had, remember when they had a, what was the name of that? It was like a, it was like a Trader Joe's that came down to South LA. It didn't last long. What was the name of that? Uh, it was like five years ago, something like that. Fresh and easy or something like that. Fresh and oh, easy.
0: Oh yeah. Fresh and easy. Right. Cause yeah. I remember there was not
1: Compton. They they had so many, but they oversaturated it. Of course, it wasn't going to be sustainable. But Trader Joe's said they were not going to bring a Trader Joe's in South L.A. because we didn't shop at Trader Joe's. When in actuality, it was like, no, you got research data to show that we go drive to Trader Joe's because I drive out the community to go to Trader Joe's. You just didn't want to come to Trader Joe's in our community because you didn't want to be in the black and brown communities. And so... Now the gentrification is happening. We know we're going to get one on Crenshaw. You know, there's going to be the target over here and all this whole food stuff, but, you know, so when as, as as these things evolve, so healthy African American families is like, okay, what, how do you hold, how do you advocate for your community? What are the policies around certain things? And then how do you have a full voice at the table to bring about the change that you need in your community? We try to first look at, cause you know, if you can't communicate, if you have less than 10 minutes to speak to your doctor when you go to the doctor, right? Which, you know, you're pretty much the whole doctor visit. You're with the front office staff. You might be with the nurse and a nurse assistant, right? And then you might have at best 10 minutes with your physician in your space, right? He's giving orders. He's getting labs. He's doing this. So if you don't know what questions to talk, they say like have three questions that you want to ask your doctor. But if you really don't know what to ask, then you might be not asking the right questions to get to your answer that you want. So if I have hypertension or diabetes and I need to talk about nutrition, they're gonna give me a bunch of papers with a lot of great information on it, but it's not information that I know how to apply into my lifestyle. You need to help me understand how to apply this or my $200 EPT card for a month in my lifestyle so that I can change my diet and my exercise plan or whatever. You have to understand my environment in order for me to say, oh, go out for a walk every day or do some kind of exercise. You might, it might not be advantageous for me to go outside in my community at that time, depending on where you live at in the city. You know, or maybe you say might, you want, might want to develop an exercise plan to go out at six o'clock in the morning, seven, between six and eight and do your little morning walk when it might not be so much traffic out, you know, whatever. Or if you're older, the sidewalks are hard to walk on when the tree is uprising or whatever. That's an area where you need to be talking to your policymakers about, right? How do you get your streets and your sidewalks safe so that you can walk on them so that you can exercise? So we do things around like what's in your built environment, what's in your home, how do we look at, we say from the cradle to the grave, what is the full spectrum of our life experience and how does research impact that to drive home what we need to bring about the change we want not necessarily what the researcher or the um the academics want but but in partnership how can you create a win-win to recreate the kind of understanding of what the needs are and also so the community can learn about data we don't know how data is driving everything so we get counted we go to this place we take a survey but we don't really understand the value of what that data will do for our community. It's like the same thing we say, shop in your own community. We don't shop in our own community because the stores in our community don't have the kind of things we want, but every dollar when you shop in your community goes back to that general area, right? That th- Those tax dollars are supporting that area. So when you're not shopping in your area, your area is not getting the kind of revenue that it would be getting if everyone was shopping in that community. Same thing with homeownership. You got homeowners using, why do they street, steam clean those streets? Well, you have more homeowners in a particular area of town than you have on a more, um, you know, minority areas where there's more apartment buildings and da da dah, dah. You have homes, but there's not enough tax paying homes. So the, the schools get impacted by that. Your street cleaning, all your street services get impacted. The dollars don't follow. So how do you how do you then have a full voice when you go to the city council? Or how do you have a full voice when you're talking about your health and health and, and what needs to be accessible in your community, right? Because should you be penalized because you live in an apartment rather than owning a house? No, Most definitely not. Exactly. But we know, we don't know how these things trickle down into creating this whole ecosystem that we live in. And
0: that's where you guys come in uh, as an advocate for the community, source of education, mm-hmm, and true. training around disparities mm-hmm. and research. How did Healthy African American Families get founded? How, so, how was it developed Why and why? Well, I guess we understand the why, but, but, but what was well, you guys' why?
1: Well, initially my mother, who was the late Dr. Loretta Jones was, so the Center for Disease Control and Prevention was partnered up with UCLA. UCLA School of Public Health. Uh, This was half phase one. There was two phases, half phase one. And they wanted to look at infant mortality and low birth weight for African American women um, from a different standpoint. They knew that there was a black-white gap in terms of birth outcomes. And there was a lot of research that had already been done, but they really wanted to look at it from an ethnographic. They wanted to have some real raw interviews with women about their experiences within going to the doctors and that so they partnered with ucla within our grant and then ucla said okay well we need we need some real uh, a community gatekeeper because we didn't know originally half was called pregnant african African african-american women los angeles paula and they they needed a gatekeeper my mother had you know a long-standing background in civil rights movement and you know, activism, social justice, you know, her work had already had expanded that. So they knew they needed to contact somebody that had a, a, a big voice in, in a lot of contacts. And so they asked her to be a part of the advisory committee. And my mother, she did, and she met with them. There was two projects, one here in Los Angeles and one in Harlem, New York. And it was called the Harlem Birthright Project. And half, well, at that time, my, my mother came on board and she said, you know, no it, it sounds great but we can't do we can't do this work the way it's originally designed because we don't need to be advisors we need to be partners we need to change the methodology we need to change the way you're going to approach this if you really want to get full engagement with community so CDC and Center, Center for Disease Control and Prevention and uh, UCLA said you know what we we, we do we, we let well how can we do it so then they had some grad students on the grant, and then that's when they brought me on board as a community person because I had I already had children. They wanted somebody with lived experience. We were doing work in the Crenshaw Baldwin Hills area and in Compton Watts. The reason those two areas were identified were because Crenshaw Baldwin Hills has you know all social economic levels, right? You had the base of the hill Baldwin Village, right? We could, at that time had a lot of different economic. Um, um, at social economic levels, but you also had the high Beverly Hills, black Beverly Hills up in the, you know, up in Bowen in Hills. So, and the same thing in Compton, a lot of people don't know the riches of Compton, but Compton has, you know, ranches and, and houses, but they also have very low income, you know? So you have that same diverse group in both areas. And so we, and that both were pop, highly populated with African-American women, you know, in their families. So we identified those two areas. So the original project was really to have those, that those interviews done. we did those interviews and it was great Um, and and the the whole process of that was to have these voices heard. We did those ethnographic interviews, um, but out of those interviews came a lot of other different, a lot of other different topics that the women and the families wanted to talk about. Like for example, the next thing that came out was where is the F in maternal child health, right? The F being father. If you're going to talk about a mother and a child and a healthy baby, how how did we eliminate the black man if we're talking about black families? And it never was addressed, and it didn't come out until we started talking about this at that time, and that was way back in 1992, right? And now you see all these father involvement programs and all these other things, and it has evolved over a long span of time. But at the beginning, nobody really was addressing that, you know the father's role and his in, in the importance of him being in the family, right? And so, and we know the history of slavery and after slavery and what happened with welfare and all that, and, and the elimination of black men in the family structure, right? Um, and so that was really critical. And then when we looked at gestational, you know, some of the barriers and challenges that women had during pregnancy, gestational diabetes was a huge part of that you know, preeclampsia, diabetes, you know, gestational diabetes. So that took on a life of its own. All the projects that we engaged in over these many years built on one thing over the next thing, like, you know, gestational diabetes, then we did diabetes as a whole, because now the community was like, we all want to know about diabetes. And then It was what followed diabetes, kidney failure, you know, kidney disease or hypertension. So one kind of led onto the next and all of these follow the same model. The model is community partnered participatory research, which means that you hear in research world, community-based participatory research, which is a little bit different. It's kind of engaging the community and this is, this was cloned. This was um, my mother was the one that altered community-based participatory research into community partner. Because as as a person in her level at that time, she realized you know if we're going to have full voice, if we're going to really be partners, and we're really going to be engaged, it's necessary for us to be to have all things disclosed to us, to have a voice about you know not just come in after you've already designed your research project. Not at, you know, you come to the community, then you want us to rubber stamp what you what you wanted to do, but you really want to disclose your budget. You need to disclose the, the, the plan that you want to, and you have to be willing to adjust based on what we're talking about is valuable to the community. And so that's where the community partner the participatory research model came from. And that's the evolution of HALF. So from HALF phase one, we decided that have needed to be its own individual institution. It had to separate from the universities because it was transferred from UCLA into the community and partnered with Charlton University. Um, and, and during that tenure at the time we were with Charlton, we're still partners with all these institutions, but have needed to be its own individual institution by itself because it had to breathe a life by itself and then partner out in order to fully execute what a community voice really meant. How do you bring community to the table and really be partners and not have something like, you know, and to be autonomous, like you have to be a partner, but you have have to have your own standing and your own voice. And how do you bring people to the table and do that in a bi-directional learning? So, you know, no one has more knowledge or more education in either way. It's like, how do we bridge this highway of education? You might know a lot because you learned it in an institution, but we may have a, a scholar in the community that could dance circles around everyone, and you wouldn't even know it because they are the gatekeeper. They are the gatekeeper. They know more about everything. So if I was to talk about gang violence, so I, I'm not. Ex, I'm not an expert in a black man's experience or what it means to be in gangs or the strength and positivity or or the, or the negative aspect. Or so either way as it comes to that. But if I'm going to develop an intervention, I need to respect them and their knowledge of what they bring to the table and not bring them to the table to pick their brain and just come up with what I think is best. So we do this in a bi-directional learning. Right.
0: I, I see that on, on your, on your website, which is h a a f i i dot O R G mm-hmm. that you guys are, it's like, we need to ensure research is done ethically and equitably, equitably. in the community mm-hmm. and that you're holding partners accountable for reporting back and creating wins for both academia and community, mm-hmm. moving away from what you guys say
1: call helicoptering. What What is helicoptering? I love that. You know, that's something that my mother also termed. It's what she, you know, what she's saying is that researchers come they come into a community they gather all their information and get people excited about something whatever and they get their data they get their research and they bounce out and they publish whatever and you never hear the community never hears back what they what they participated in they don't know anything about the outcomes it gets published in a high-end journal right and the community never knows okay well that it's interesting that, you know, the the the, um, the consent form says you may not benefit directly from that. Da, 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 I might not benefit directly, but I should know what came out of the data that came from this research at some level, right? So when she, she says research has a, you know, you can't come in the community and, and gather information, gather data and do what you want to do and not give back, deposit something back. You know, the re- data needs to come back to the community to build capacity, to enhance programs, to educate, to derive the next agenda. And you can't just come in and do what you want and not make sure that there's some benefit for community. It it may not be monetary benefit right there, but there has to be a win-win for everyone coming to that table. You have to find out what is gonna be good for you, your agency, for individual, for the community at large, if you're gonna come and work
0: in the community. Right, you can't just come in and hover over and mm-hmm. and 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 pull out what you need and then take off exactly right okay so we're going to take a break and when we come back i want us to talk about some of the projects that you guys participated in where the cppr worked the community partner participatory research worked okay. i'm angela birdsong and you're listening to conversation piece on radio justice dot org with Felika Jones of healthy African American families.
1: This isn't more than just a portrait of my cerebral cortex It's a mural of my devotion Took a couple years to develop my ant stick Now I hunt in every sand Leave the carcass at your doorstep They give me an inch better I'm taking 40 acres for my kingdom And tell them it was a cinch like a corset Funny part is the same People died on my drive, headed for my lane Ain't that shit ironic, Mrs. Morrison? They don't know I've been through it Probably what my influence hit them hard Leave them struggling with the emotions And if every tear i cried was measured or verified I would be treading water in my azure. So I chop and portion, needs to march with memories in the sound bites and y'all consider digest every morsel. I want every gym I drop to engage him. So I act, y'all consider this submission a proposal. I've been banging
0: on these doors, I'm about to kick them down. Keep it driving on this long and lonely road. road. It's so long it's time I Improving the health outcomes of the African-American, Latino, and Korean communities in Los Angeles County by enhancing the quality of care and advancing social progress through education, training, and collaborative partnering with community stakeholders, academia, researchers, and government. That's healthy African-American families. I'm Angela Birdsong. Welcome back to Conversation Peace. And we have Felika Jones, of healthy African-American families. When we went into the break, you were talking about the community partner participatory research, how moving away from helicoptering where people just come in, gather data on us, leave, have their big, um, big fat journals, mm-hmm. big fat grants and we don't know what they're using it for and there's no, no feedback, there's no give back. <laughs> they, they're just gone. But what are some of the projects that you guys have done where CPPR has worked and has, where, where we know what's being used and maybe even got some give back?
1: All of the projects that we have done have used, utilized the model that, that I just spoke of, the community partner participatory research model. And they are all built with the capacity for community to be at every level of the process of the research. Uh, dissemination of the research project and our um, uh, building outcomes. So, uh, it, just like I said, the, so the preterm delivery was our first one, and then from that we had a, a diabetes uh, project. We had a kidney project with the UCLA. The kidney was Charles Drew University, and you know many other partners, community partners, the churches, and and some of the um, other nonprofit organizations. When I say Community at large. I'm talking about other nonprofits that are part of this, the lay community, the faith-based community, and um, we always have some either some representation from a policymaker to be a part of it, and our funders are usually kind of more engaged in our process. Um, and we've had a we've had a long-standing mental health project. We started off with a project called Witness for Wellness. Uh, back in 2003, which was really looking at, you know, how does the black community even talk about depression? Uh, Ken, Dr. Ken Wells out of UCLA, he, he really was very interested in addressing mental health. He had a program uh, that he knew that, would, that was working to increase um, depression care, but he wanted to meet with my, my mother, Dr. Loretta Jones, to say, you know, how could we bring this to South LA? And my mother said, first, we have to break down the stigma of depression before we could even start talking about depression, because black people don't even want to talk about depression. It's like, we don't want to talk about death, but death happens every day. We're not preparing for wheels and all these other things. So she said, okay, well, let's go to lunch. She likes to take people to lunch, or like people to take her to lunch or go out to eat. And uh, as we do as black people like to break bread and talk about business. So she said, "Uh, we'll go to lunch. And they went to lunch and they started talking about how they could address depression. So we had a huge conference in 2003. It was actually a two-day conference. We planned this conference together. So people that had depression, family members that uh, were affected by somebody with depression, you know, the faith community and nonprofit serving agencies, non-traditional sites of people to talk about what does depression look like. From there, and I don't want to spend too much time on that, but that was one project. And from there, a multiple of different projects spun out of that project with a lot of the same cohorts of people and different cohorts of people, individuals, like RAND Corporation was part of it, Behavior Health Services, um, um, uh, uh, THE was part of it at one point. I mean, NAMI was part of the C P I C project, NAMI was part of it. Um, You know, a lot of the churches in our community, Charles Drew, uh, other different aspects of UCLA, Um, and and multiple community people, but at the planning, so we had Witness for Wellness, CPIC, which is Community Partners in Care. No, it was the Restoration Center, which was trying to build the strength of what mental health, the resiliency of mental health in the black community. And then we had this Community Partners in Care, which we randomized 95 agencies, 95 programs within agencies in South LA. After the community helped develop we look, look at the manuals that were already available and then say, how might this work best in our communities for lay community people to really address mental health? And we developed manuals and we worked and they were randomized. It was a wonderful program. And from that, there was the Be Rich program, which was a resiliency-based intervention uh, using a, 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 a seven-week course that we did. And we're still using that. We Now that course has been evolved into a pregnant program that um, Mama's Neighborhood uses. The LGBTQ community, which is the RAD project is using that. And we're using it with Kaiser with our senior population. So it has evolved and we have known it be proven effective that if we can engage in this way, it, it, it does work well. And then from there, we had we a community child health network. We have, um, like I said, we have our scene. We have two different autism well, we had one just ended, but two different autism projects. One is really getting people to families and children to help transition children from kindergarten to first grade or from fifth grade to sixth grade to from school, help to make sure that most, because most children, and this is with um, AirB, it's, we're now in AirB3, it's Air, AirB Autism Intervention Research Network. Um, and that's a partner with kind of Dr. Connie Kasari at UCLA and uh, the regional centers. We're partnered with the regional centers as well. Um, and that project is really to really help transition families to get a toolkit to go to the next. So the previous teacher in the new school will be able to make sure this receiving child, the child coming to the new school, will have a whole recipe book of how to handle this child when they get to the new school. Because children with autism, by the time their records catch up with them it's almost halfway into the school year before they can transition properly. Well, not that long, but well, in our community, a little bit longer. So we developed a manual in partnership with community, and that's an actual five site study. That's all the way back east. We, there's five different areas across the nation as part of that study to see if this is really going to be effective. And the other autism project was with the faith based community, and that was specifically only for African Americans because the African-Americans were falling through the gaps in terms of um, the service provision pay, uh, making sure that they were able to access all of services that they were available through the regional centers and just navigating through systems that they weren't, they weren't able to really, um, they weren't successful at navigating through. It was not on them that they couldn't do it. It was just, how do we develop a toolkit that can help families with children with autism? Um, it's a way to make sure that they can connect to the specialties that their children might need. And so that project was really successful. And it was that the tail end of that came with, when COVID hit. And so we we had to change. We had a conference on it. We have a lot of footage on it. I'd be glad to share it with anybody, but we're, we're actually in the process of writing for another one of those grants um, just through at the end of the month. But that was really, really interesting because when COVID hit, we didn't realize how impacted our families that had children with special special needs in our in our population with the autism. But there was a lot of other, like I said, hearing impaired. You know, if you're wearing a mask, people that have hearing impaired, man, they can't see any of us. They don't know what's going on. And unless you move your mask, now you're exposed. Or, you know, how are people communicating? Or, you know, you could only imagine the fear or anxiety rather that they might face in that population. And there was not a lot of at least I haven't heard of a lot of conversation around the hearing impaired. And so we look at when we see gaps and things and how could we address it, especially when it comes to our population, minorities within inner cities or you know, under, under resource communities.
0: Well, you guys most definitely are very much involved in all aspects. Of marginalized communities, COVID. You 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 mentioned a few of the um, one of the gaps that, that we see in COVID when you're talking about the hearing impaired, and now we see that there are um, see, see-through masks that we have. I don't know if that was intentional for the hearing impaired, or if that was just for vanity
1: for for us. Well, I think it, but, is, but, it probably was vanity, uh, but now. You know, it's a great thing, but, but people in our community don't have those see-through masks. And the, the masks that are being distributed are not see-through, right? So, you know, I mean, it's good that if you can get some for our community, but the majority of people that are running in the community don't have see-through masks. And so there's still a, there's still a, there's still a barrier, that's still a huge barrier for a family that has a child or a family member or you, I mean, you can't read lips if you can't see lips.
0: No, you cannot. What are some of the other um, gaps with
1: COVID? Well, the, our senior population was hugely impacted um, by COVID as well. Um, we, we know that they weren't able to get out. Um, they weren't able to get the resources bring it brought in. And just the communication between how to keep your senior healthy, in, in, in the, especially when you have multiple families living in a house. You know, oftentimes seniors get vulnerable the older, you know, the older they get, even though it could be the head of the matriarch or whatever, patriarch of the family. Um, When you have younger people that don't really understand what's really going on in this climate or don't really believe that this is really important, how do you keep your senior healthy? So, you know, we have to do a lot of communication building between these sectors and to also we say transfer power to our seniors, making sure the seniors know you have a right to demand that everybody that's in your house wears a mask, even if they're coming and going, you know, that they're sanitizing their hands. You know, so you know, developing these two kits, you know, because seniors, they have a high rate of depression. As you know, you have a lot of friends and family members or you, call, you know, people that you knew are leaving you at a particular era time, you know, in your 80s and 90s. A lot of your friends are disappearing, you know, they're, you know, going off to be with the father, you know, and so, you know, mental health is a big issue. And if now you're isolated. You can't go out. You can't get people to come in. And then so the meals that they were giving to the seniors was what they were offering was Meals on Wheels or some other hot food program. Well, the seniors that we work with, they were like, well, I'm grateful but I do want to be able to make my own food. I would like to have a bag of groceries that I can chop and cook in my, you know, everybody's not handicapped senior. They're just not able to get out, you know, you know what I mean? And they don't want to go out because they may have other comorbidities, you know, co- I may mean, other health conditions that could put them more at risk if they went out. So during that time we were dropping off bags of food, you know, wherever we got from. you know, Herb Weston's office was giving us stuff. We were getting stuff from, uh, community, um, I forgot, he's right across the street. <laughs> Forgive me, I forgot his- Community bill. bill. Thank you. My brain was- Community <laughs> we, we were getting stuff from, you know, uh, different food banks that were giving our food. We, I, you know, like I said, Healthy African American Families does not do direct services. But we provide a service if there's a need for service. You know, my mother's model and mine as well is that there's, we don't close the door on anyone that walks through our door or that we find there's a need for You find that resource and you deliver that resource. So if our community is in need, then we transition, right? We may, you know, how do you support the need in the community? So when we think about COVID, jumping back to your original question, COVID you know, the new technology Zoom that we're on does not work for our senior population. It doesn't work for a lot of, a lot a of parents that are dealing with their children. You got five kids. One of the women, so I got five kids in school and they all have to have a device. And, you know, my internet bandwidth is not strong enough. And then I'm trying to talk to this one on this computer now. But, I, but at the end of the day, I don't want to talk to nobody. So you can't set up something for mom when she's burnt out already. So we have to start to think about, like in this, in this, in this climate, how are we going to be able to reach, and teach, and to strengthen the human context? So how are we thinking about these platforms that we have that's going to be engaging, that's going to excite people? So, so COVID is is definitely a switch, but there's different things that, like I thought about for kids, you know you can have kids that like in inner city housing developments, right? They can stay six feet apart from a gym, still play jump rope, right? You can still get the community out and throw a ball across the courtyard from each other and still have interactive and contact from, you know, seeing another individual. It's important for our mental well being for us to understand that we don't have to live in a bubble. You don't have to keep your kids locked in your house. They can still exercise they can still jump, they can, st- you know what I mean? But we have to think outside the box when we're thinking about all these other things that's going on in this climate because it's affecting our mental health.
0: So you're, you you touched upon one of your five pillars for, for healthy African-American families, which is community. And that's, you guys say, ensuring community members have somewhere to go for basic services and and resources mm-hmm. with COVID. It sounds like you guys have these COVID toolkits that you're you're giving to to seniors, giving to to families in terms of how to get outside of that box and still sheltering in place.
1: Yeah. Well, we're 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 working with groups of people now. The same in our CPPI process to think outside these boxes. Like, how are we going to create things that can so we're remodeling our intervention for our seniors right now, thinking like, you know, how can we help you best? Right. And then the other areas are also in development of like, what do we need to do for these other populations? So we we have been distributing masks and hand sanitizer. I've got some I got hand sanitizer for the Department of Public Health. I got masks from Department of Devel- DDS, which is, you know, they gave us a fact. I'm going to pick up some more masks. So if any of your listeners are in need of masks and, and hand sanitizer, they can reach out to healthy African-American families, and we definitely make sure that, especially your special needs population, I want to make sure that they all get masks, seniors and children and families, especially, you know, with autism or any of those other kinds of uh, needs, but I will not turn anyone away that needs a mask. I think those those other, those, and food distribution is still a huge process, we're, we're still, Trying to partner up with more agencies that we can get food out to people, but we have connect made connections with other people that are distributing food, so we've been linking up with them to get the food out to to whoever.
0: Who else is being overlooked and in, in this pandemic when it comes to African Americans and other marginalized
1: communities? You know, from I don't know necessarily if they're being overlooked or. Well, I guess I would say that they're not, I don't think the messaging, I think a lot of young people are working on the messaging, but for example, I, you know, and I don't know how, why they're not embracing this this distance. Like, you know, like you go to the basketball court in a particular area, you'll see everybody on the basketball court or right near the job. There was a big old party, like a you know, They were, they had a tent and they were having a party. So I think that the younger generation, there still needs to be a lot more work and and it needs to come from the younger generation. Like we have to engage them in a way so that, see again, thinking outside the box, we have to do more work on what is the messages that's going to impact them for their life. So um, I think when we think about COVID and young people, you have to understand that they don't really see themselves fully at that, 20, 30 lifespan, 40 lifespan. So how do I make it valuable to them now? Or for example, who do they love most? Do I love my mama most? Maybe I love my baby more. Maybe I love, so who is that person that you might want to live long enough for them? That you might develop something for them because it ain't for me, you know? It's like, you got to think outside these boxes a little bit differently.
0: Right, because when, when I think about when I was young, you, you know, you just, you're take more risk mm-hmm. without realizing you're taking risks. Cause that's just the nature of being youthful and vibrant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, you know, I got nieces and nephews and they all have different approaches with this COVID thing. Mm-hmm. They're, 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 they're out and about
1: going to the hookah bars and doing well, what they want to do. That's their life. Yes. It's like, if we're going to have an impact, I couldn't figure it out either. You know, it's like when, when I remember when the H1N1 hit. Remember way back in the day, the SARS virus? Remember a long time ago? My mother was like, oh, my H1N1, H1N1. And I was like, if she don't stop it with that H1N1, I'm not getting no vaccine. I'm not going to do this. Now, when I had my grandson, right, and they said, oh, you know, your grand, your babies could die. Da, 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 da. And as an adult, you could bring it to them. I didn't do it for me. I did it for my grandbaby. I got me a shot for my grandbaby, right? And so, because it was important for me to do it for my, I want to make sure my grandbaby did, I didn't bring something to my grandbaby, right? So it's like the same thing. It's like, how do we, what do we connect? What is, how do we connect to them that's going to make that light go off for them? Like, for example, the other day, um, Obama Boulevard in La Brea, right? They were doing donuts And they literally took over the whole street, north, south, east, and west. I couldn't believe it. It was about a hundred and some people out there. And they're doing donuts in the middle of the street and all this smoke. And I'm pissed off. I'm like, I'm upset. And I'm like, why is no police out here? Now that you know, now when you need them, they ain't nowhere to be found. Right. And, I, and we really don't want them. We really don't want them. But but at this point you need them because nobody has basketball. <laughs> Everybody's out there and some the one of these cars can flip over. You could just put a helicopter in the light and everybody would have dispersed. There's a way to get around this, right? Right, right. But, if but they at, just do that. Yeah, but at this point, there this could have been very harmful for the community. It could have been harmful for and so a lot of people, they were stuck there for over 20, 30 minutes in that traffic. Right. They could not move while these people were in the middle of the street doing their entertainment. Right. The takeover. And the takeover. They couldn't see beyond that moment. But I, as an older person, stuck in that car and seeing all these other people, it just blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. So when I called the police 911, they didn't answer. I, they was just I was on hold forever. And then I had to have my daughter use her phone to call. Southwest police station, they said, oh, we got many cars they are on the way. Well, I stood there, I videotaped on Citizen, and they literally only sent two cars more than one direction, and they didn't do nothing. And everybody eventually just kind of dispersed a little bit or whatever, whatever. But yet you can send five cars on Crenshaw from Adams to King Boulevard and get tickets out all day. Or you can go up and down Vernon all day and get tickets all day. Or you can go, I mean, these are regular motorcycle cops and people on cars. And then our community our community saturated with that. You know, these ain't no traffic officers. These are people in, you know, police officers in black and whites and, and motorcycle cops. And, and yet you can't send but two cars for this, it could cause harm to everybody. That that blew my mind. That's a problem for me. See, this is where we come together as a community, right? If you are a police department and you really want to stop some of this drama. There's a, I mean, it's illegal either way, right? I mean, all of it's going to be illegal, but which one is more or less harm reduction? If you say we got these band and you know, we got some abandoned lots all over the city, you know, give them a big old lot, say on Tuesdays and Fridays or what that day, you all could gather there. We have to have some, but there has to be something other than taking over a public street like that. I'm not saying it's, it's right or wrong. I mean, well, I am saying it's wrong on my end because I'm a like grown <laughs> woman. But for yes. them, it's like their entertainment. So if you have to find some other ways to handle that because that's why it turns deadly. And then it sounds like you guys have a new project. <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, there's a whole lot of other ones that are taking more priority, but that's definitely is something that I would put on a TikTok video or uh,
0: Instagram right. or like that. What is next? And tell us about this
1: conference you guys have going on. So yes, thank you for asking. Our our conference is a three part series. Um, and the t- on, on next Wednesday will be the last of the three part. But however, we have recorded it and once we upload it, will be you'll be able to listen to a lot of the um the the things that went on in the presenters. But the 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 goal of this conference was, like I said, after my mother passed away and I started thinking about all the leaders in our community that have been at least part of my work experience and my knowledge coming to California. And I remember when my mother first started working and all the people showed that she stood on and helped mentor her into the work that she did, like Ms. Mobley, Ms. Henry, um, Ernest Smith, Dr. Ernest Smith, uh, Ron Johnson. You know, there's quite a few, Locke Galloway, Galloway, you know, there's a lot of people that's in the community that were strong gatekeepers and they mentored her, right? And, that like my, and of course my mother, that's the biggest part of her work is mentorship, right? You know, we teach academics on one end and they and, and, and vice versa. So it's, it's a mentorship that goes both ways. So, you know, the community mentors the academics and the academics get mentored by community. So no one is learning not from each other. We, we do everything together. So when I kept thinking about what needs to happen next, how do you have full voice at the table of research or any of these kind of things, policymaking? How does a community member that have a passion about something really understand or exercise their full voice or understand what an um, oversight committee does on any research or government? What does um, uh, our internal review board mean? When they're doing a research project, How do you sit in a room when they're asked to be a participant or something, but have full voice? What the skill sets do you really need to sit on the commissioner's, you know the commissioner's table as a community member? How do you have full voice and not what I call rubber stamp? Like be there because you're a black person, woman, but, uh, and you're the token community person. But you just, you know, there and you, okay, well, that sounds good. You might add a few words here and there, but you don't really know what's happening, nor do they take the time out to explain or all those acronyms, all the things that are going on in that meeting. They take time to make sure that you're up to speed on what they, they hand you a nice, beautiful package. They sit you down. They may feed you something. They give you a little token afterwards, a little whatever. But how do you know how to exercise your full voice at that table? So what I decided that we have a manual, we have a special edition book that we published a long time ago. Everything that we do, I forgot to say early on, everything that we do when we say helicopter in and out, we make sure we report it back to the community. So we have conferences. We used to have at least five to seven conferences a year in person that had anywhere from 100 to 150 to 300 people at these conferences. And they were always for free of charge. And this would always highlight the work that we're doing, the partnership, the people that's engaged. And then we would always go, okay, so what do we need to do next? And so we get information from the group, the community at large, and then we go back and do some more work. So that's how, when I said everything builds on another, that's it's called building bridges to optimum health. That's our conference series. But so those, that's one of the symposiums. So the symposium that we're having now is how, how do we take what we have in our, in our manual, I mean, in our special edition and a curriculum to make sure that community members or community partners have the toolkits that they actually need to be effective partnership, effective partners at the table. And, and then also how do you teach and mentor your opposite side of things? So the conference was talking to community members and academics and policymakers. And, and to say, you know, what what are the lessons we learned? What are some of the holes or gaps that we think that we still need to, you know, address? And then how do we go about moving into this institution, which we're calling Community Learning Leadership Institute for Equity? And that's the name that we can because we realize that the institution has to be in the community and it has to be bi-directional. It's like, you know, the clinical scholars have a scholar program or academics have a You know, in education, has scholarships for them to go to school and to do what they need to do. But the community doesn't get a scholarship. We get a stipend for this, a stipend for that, but not something where you can really develop your skill set to really have that voice. And in order for us to really do that, we have to carve out some time for them to learn about this stuff. And so the institute will be will foster that. And that so next next Wednesday from twelve to two thirty is the last part of the conference series. And then we'll move into actually building the curriculum.
0: And you said that um, this three-day three, three day conference that took over a span of three weeks will be available for everyone to see
1: on your website or, or where? It'll be on our website if after we, you know, we're gonna go through all three sessions and then the parts where people presented or stuff, we'll, we'll, we'll have to put that together, but then we're gonna write up some stuff first. So. We'll have another conference to talk about the dissemination of what came out of the information that we had. In order for us to move to the next stage, we have to pass the baton and we have to train up the people in the right way to understand that their voice is, is, is extremely important and their, and, their, and their intellectual properties should be valued Academic get paid and and, and understand their back. But when you come to community, it's like, oh, we should do it for the altruistic movement of this, that, and the other. But no, your intellectual properties, what you're contributing, changes and shapes outcomes for different things. But how do you exercise your full voice when you're sitting at these tables? You know, you might be the only woman, only minority in a room full of a whole lot of people with a bunch of letters behind their name, and you might feel intimidated. But how do you exercise your full voice at that table. You've been invited, they need you there, but how do you make sure, how do they also know to make sure that they're engaging you in the right way and not just having you sit there as a token, but to really fully engage you as a partner or as an intellectual person being involved or engaged?
0: That is very important. Give us your website. How can we find you? Where can we come and get us a mask and some hand sanitizer?
1: So we are located in the famous Lamert Park in Los Angeles. Our number is 323-292-2002. And our website is haafii.org. dot you. Thank you to Felika Jones, Executive
0: Director of Healthy African American Families. Thank you to Leslie Radford, Adam Rice, Nicole Johnson, Michael Washington of M. Wausau for the opening and closing theme song and always you are our RJLA family reach us on radio justice facebook give us some love give us some likes as you listen to us worldwide anytime on radiojustice.org i'm angela birdsong once again thank you for allowing me to share this special experience of conversation peace on radio justice los angeles with you. Remember to be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be brave, be courageous, and let all that you do be done with love.